Welcome back, film fans. We are here today to talk about musical score. I left my guitar in my room uh, for everybody's benefit, but I am joined here by film fan Mike Butler. Mike, hey. thanks for joining. No problem. Happy to be here. So you are somewhat of a film score enthusiast. Do I have that right? I I am. Yes, I've been a I've been listening to film scores for for a long time. Uh, essentially, just an extension of a love for movies and being able to you know listen to them outside of actually watching the movie. But yeah, big big film th- film score enthusiast. So, what context do you listen? Do you listen while you work? Do you listen before you've seen a movie, or only after? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I um, film scores are constantly on um, whenever I'm doing work. I listen to a lot of instrumental music and a lot of film scores when I work out as well. But when I was younger, I used to do this thing where um, I would actually listen to the film score before I'd go see the movie and try to like map out what the movie would be in. Whoa via the film score and then see it and like cross-reference see if I was close at all and I usually like wasn't close right uh but that was a ton of fun but as I started to I don't know appreciate film scores a little bit more um especially with the movies that I uh really wanted to see I'd kind of resist listening to them before just because you you want to experience the score for the first time in its you know intended context right and like I still cheat from time to time but I try to hold off as much as possible yeah, and avoid those spoilery track names from time to time. Oh, yeah. So the five movies this year nominated in the best score category, Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, Little Women, Marriage Story, 1917, and Joker. Those are in reverse order of the odds right now for what's going to win. So we can take them one by one uh, if that works for you. But um, before we get into the individual movies, overall... As somebody who listens to a lot of film scores, probably, you know, you're in good shape. It looks like you've been working out a lot. So what do you think overall of the uh, field this year? Uh, I thought I thought it was it was great. Um, there's, you know, since I've been really listening to film scores, I think I, I gain a little bit of appreciation each year for it. You start understanding the nuances and um, what a film score really brings to a movie that evolves over, over the time when I've been listening to it. And this year, having, like, really, you know, dove into each one of these uh, specifically and you you kind of trying to notice what the composer is doing to enhance the movie or try to stay out of the way so that the characters can really shine i think the ones that are nominated here with maybe um, the exception of of star wars in my opinion they all do really fantastic things in terms of enhancing the movie and kind of driving driving the the audience participation and the emotional aspects of it. So I think it's a pretty great docket. I think we're going to probably talk about snubs at the end. I don't really have a super long, robust list for that, but I think there are some that should have been on here, uh, and maybe some movies that should have been nominated more just for other Oscars as well, right? Yeah, I agree with that. I definitely have a handful of snubs. But you mentioned the Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, so let's start with that. Obviously, this is scored by John Williams. This is his 52nd Oscar nomination. 5-2. That includes 14 years when he had multiple nominations in the same year, and two years, 1974 and 1996, when he was nominated three times in each of those years. So that's crazy. That's three out of five in a category. He has won five times, but not since 1994 for Schindler's List. Interestingly enough, he won for the original Star Wars A New Hope in 1978. He was nominated for all the original trilogy films. He's been nominated for all of the sequel trilogy films. He was not nominated for any of the prequel films, though he did score them all.
So, Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, you kind of hinted at the fact that you thought maybe the score got in the way, the way a little bit? Not so much that it got in the way a little bit. I mean, I think it's just, when you look at the other movies, a lot of the composers are doing something that's a little bit more revolutionary um, within the space. And, I mean, this is just, John Williams, he's the best. Everybody knows he's the best. And he's, as you said, this is nine Star Wars film. And... Um, he's just kind of hitting, hitting the greatest hits in terms of Star Wars, and it's great. It does everything it's supposed to. It does everything that other Star Wars have done. It's you know mysterious when it needs to be, when you're maybe investigating the Sith and Palpatine a little bit. I mean, it's like conflicted when I, whenever Kylo and um, Rey are on screen. It swells to let you know that there's about to be a big battle coming. So it's doing everything that the other Star Wars films do great, which is like that operatic... Um, appeal, which honestly, Star Wars movies can't be Star Wars movies without this type of score. Um, I mean, not to say that John Williams doesn't bring in new elements. He writes new themes for you know Palpatine and Kylo to try to help the audience on the path throughout Kylo's potential redemption arc. Maybe without that, that's less possible. That didn't really work for me too much in the movie, but I just see this as being a ultimate send off to John Williams' Star Wars career. It's like the ultimate bow on top. I mean, you can just tell that he's having a ton of fun in the work, conducting one of the largest orchestras in the world. He is conducting a 100-person voice choir, with which I think is only there to uh, recite the words of like a made-up Sith language. So it's just a ton of fun. John Williams is in the movie, too. He like actually has a cameo. I think he's like a bartender in a couple scenes. So it's just literally a send-off to John Williams. I think it I think it works in that respect. Yes, it's just more of like a nostalgic feel at the end of the day. I don't think he's going to win this, but at the end of the day, I don't think I could say he shouldn't be on the list. I don't think he's gonna win this either, and certainly the odds makers don't think he's gonna win. He did do a lot of substantial work across the sequel trilogy broadly. Most memorably, I think probably Ray's theme yeah. is what's broken through the most. Kylo Ren on the First Order theme, too, is recognizable at this point. This is probably the least innovative that he's been across the three scores. And part of that, obviously, is the return of Palpatine because he's recycling the Imperial March, even though he's making some adjustments to it. Part of it sort of matches the movie, which is that this does not want to be what The Last Jedi was. This doesn't want to move the trilogy to a new place. It wants to kind of revisit and celebrate the first nine, the first eight movies and where they've been. And so I guess John Williams matches that, but I didn't think that was that interesting in the storytelling, and so I don't think it's that interesting in the score. Yeah, and I, I completely agree with that. And I think it was intentional, as you're alluding to, with The Last, or um, The Rise of Skywalker is kind of just a retcon of The Last Jedi, right? And it's kind of, it's going back to the greatest hits of Star Wars, and to your point, John Williams is doing just that. And that's why you can't fault him. He's doing amazing work in this film score, um, but it's based on nostalgia for the most part, which as fans and as, you know, the fan culture that kind of got J.J. back, for the most part, into the driving seat, like, you can't blame him because it's kind of what we're asking for, right? And John, John Williams, he delivers on that. He does. You mentioned kind of Star Wars after John Williams. I think it is pretty fair to assume this will be the send-off. I mean, you never know with Disney. They'll try to milk the yeah. stone for every drop of water. But Ludwig Göransson, who scored the Black Panther last year, he was nominated, 
recently scored The Mandalorian, which was obviously a very different take on a Star Wars soundtrack that got, I think, pretty universal praise as far as the soundtrack, even people like me who didn't like The Mandalorian that much. It'll be interesting to see where they go, whether it kind of... I'm sure there's certain little homages within the Star Wars musical canon that will just always be pulled through, but... It'll be interesting to see kind of where the direction goes on future trilogies and future TV series when when kind of John Williams isn't the one scoring them anymore. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it'll be interesting to see if they get away from this nostalgia track, which since this trilogy or the saga has come to an end, maybe they can get away and go for more of like a Western feel of like The Mandalorian, which is unique in its own right. Um, but we'll have to see. We'll have to see. So. Another person who's been nominated a lot, not 52 times, um, but 11 times, is Alexandra Desplat. He scored Little Women this year. Um, he won two Oscars in 2018. He won for The Shape of Water. In 2015, for The Grand Budapest Hotel. And in that year, he actually was also nominated in the same category for The Imitation Game. What did you think of the soundtrack of Little Women? <laughs> It was an emotional journey. I may have gotten teary-eyed a couple times throughout the movie. I'd never seen any of the other Little Women, so I didn't have a, a lot of context. Um, but um, the emotional journey throughout the movie, I think, was completely amplified by um, Alexander's uh, film score. I think it was completely intentional. Uh, the moments of like joy or sadness um, or hope that you're feeling uh, without the score there, you would have probably would have resonated. But he just does such a great job of expanding that emotion. Um, and really amplifying it. And um, what's really interesting about this film is if you go into it with an ear towards the score, you'll notice that almost none, none of it has no music behind it. It's throughout the entirety of the movie. And I think that's a choice and was intentional because this movie is like two hours long, but it goes by really fast for me because of the pacing and the interactions between the four women, they're, they're always emotionally sparring with each other and sometimes physically sparring with each other. It's like they're having a, an intricate dance the entire time, and especially with the time jumps, it just feels very much like a ballet, and the choice to have the music playing in the background the entire time really supports that feeling that it is a dance, and it kind of helps pace the movie as quickly as it felt for me, and I think it, it really worked. What about you? Yeah, the overall tone of Little Women is frenetic, I would say. There's a lot of scenes where it sort of reminds you of people getting ready to leave for a trip and they're trying to find their luggage and keys yeah. and they're just running around the house. And that's definitely the and the time measure of the score. So I think it fits the movie for sure and sort of the whirlwind that is the sisters' relationships. Yeah, and some, and some of the things that I had read were uh, something he intended with the score is you're introduced to the melody pretty early on and the melody is supposed to be emblematic of each one of the the different women and it doesn't change for the most part throughout the entire movie it's kind of consistent and uh he mentioned that this was deliberate because he was because there's so many time jumps this was a method for him to like kind of ground the audience and give them a little bit of something to hold on to and remember throughout of it throughout it to 
um, kind of hold the, the audience's hand through some of those time jumps. I didn't really explicitly see that or feel that throughout, but uh, could very well be that I subconsciously was, you know, had my hand held throughout. That is a sensible approach, and it seems like the kind of thing you might be able to pick up on a rewatch. I think that if you pick it up the first time you're watching it, they probably didn't do it right, because mm. that's not where I'm sure Greta Gerwig wants the attention, but it's smart as a sort of a subtle yeah. tour guide. It's definitely a light and airy score, is it? Um, does it pump you up to lift? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, Greta, Greta Gerwig asked when when she was talking with Alexander, he, uh, she said that she wanted a a film score that was, I think, a combination of like Mozart and David Bowie. So, I, I mean, did you get the Davy Bowie, the David Bowie aspect whatsoever? Because if you did, then maybe it would be great for working out. <laughs> I got the Mozart for sure. Yeah, I don't have anything clever to say about that. I know. I, I think it, that was just her way of saying that I want to modernize this this period piece for the most part. And she makes some choices in terms of like costume and hair and makeup and, and to try to make it feel a little bit more modern. And I think that was her way of, of expressing that the music should feel a little bit more modern as well, not just straight classicism. Interestingly enough, uh, the 1994 version of Little Women was a more classic take on it. And it was scored by... Thomas Newman. Yeah. Thomas Newman, who is nominated for 1917. This is actually a little bit out of order with the odds, but it's such a natural transition. This is probably seen as kind of maybe the second most likely to win. And that probably starts with the fact that Thomas Newman has been nominated 15 times for Oscars, and he has not won. Um, Some of his notable nominations, American Beauty, Shawshank Redemption, Skyfall, You just saw 1917 last night, so it's fresh in your mind. How'd you feel about the score? Yeah, uh, again, I, I didn't cheat with this one, so I didn't listen to the score before. So my uh, my knowledge of the score is that movie last night and listening to it again today. Um, I, you know, going out a little bit of limb, I, I really enjoyed the movie. I thought it was a fun ride. Um, I, didn't, I didn't think the gimmick of the one-shot feel of it was uh, didn't get old to me at all. But in terms of the score, I didn't. Um, I didn't really notice it too much throughout the first watch of it, and then listening it to it again, I could, I can, I could picture when it was subtly in the background, um, and I think that was completely intended for it not to um, be overpowering. That it takes you out of the, out of the film and out of this journey that you're following these these two guys on, um, and you know, in a couple interviews that he's given, it was, you know, Thomas Newman has said that he struggled with this score. Uh, in the sense that he never wanted to, you know, comment on something that happened in the film in terms of 
reflecting on something that just occurred or giving the audience any sort of clue or hint on what's about to come around the corner. Um, and when I reflect on when I saw the movie, I think that actually worked a lot uh, for me because, I mean, you're constantly on edge throughout the entire movie because you have no idea what's going to happen on this journey that these two guys go on. And, uh, you know, you never know if there's going to be an ambush, if there's going to be, they're going to get shot at. And, I mean, specifically that one scene when they're in, like, that French town, um, you never know if, you know, he's going to go through a door and there's going to be, you know, 20 Germans in there. And I remember just thinking, like, okay, it's pretty dang quiet right now. Like, the music would tell me if there's going to be a ton of Germans around the corner. And the fact that it never tells you, it never hints, makes you more on edge and makes those surprises really land. So I think that's, it does what it's supposed to do, which is be understated. It is understated. It's interesting because it's a movie where the atmospheric elements sort of have to carry maintaining the suspense. There's not a lot of dialogue. So the score in that almost seems like it's doing maybe heavier lifting than in some other movies that you would see throughout a year. But they do do that almost by the absence of a noticeable score or noticeable cues. Yeah. I think one of the criticisms a lot in the best song category, which I don't really share, I actually am like a, one of the few movie people that really likes the best song category, but the criticism that you get a lot is that people just kind of plop something in the end credits and it doesn't really flow through the rest of the movie. I think a movie like this where it's such, you're on such kind of an adrenaline rush the whole time, you're holding your breath the whole time, and you finally get to sigh when the movie's over, and then you kind of can key in on this sort of driving, aggressive score, and it kind of gives you a little boost coming out. I feel like this is a movie where the score almost plays that same function as like a song in the end credits would, at least as far as what kind of I remember the most about it walking out. Yeah. So Thomas Newman, Cousins with Randy Newman, who is nominated for the fourth of the score movies, that's Marriage Story. Randy Newman has 22 Oscar nominations, including two this year. Um, He's also nominated for a song uh, from Toy Story 4, uh, which I'll talk about in a little bit. I can't let you throw my... Throw yourself away. Now, he has won twice for original song. He won for Toy Story 3 and for Monsters, Inc. He's never won for score. What did you remember about the score from Marriage Story? He's hilarious up there. He's always self-deprecating. He kind of rips on the Academy. And because he's been nominated nine times for Best Original Score and hasn't won, I think it's nine times, um, 
seeing him up there, and also he would probably continue the trend and start just being really self-deprecating and, and ripping on all those who didn't believe in him or something like that. But uh, he's hilarious, and I think he approached this this score with Noah Baumbach with a little uh, hesitation. I think I remember reading that he saw the script and he watched the movie, and he was particularly not intimidated, but didn't really know how to. Uh, work through that eight-minute opening monologue, but I think he honestly nails it. I mean, that eight-minute monologue, it really just sets the scene for the entire movie. It lets you know the personalities of each one of these two characters, and the music and the, the score does an integral, is an integral part of understanding their personality. He deliberately chooses a French horn for Adam Driver's character because it's a little bit more, um, you know, has a little bit more personality, a little bit more melancholy, and then he chooses a piano for Scarlett Johansson's character, which is a little bit more like upbeat and a little bit more movement behind the melody itself. And he kind of sticks with those melodies throughout the entire entire movie. Um, they don't really change; they're just there to remind you of these of these two people and their personality. And what I find really interesting about this score, in comparison in comparison to um, some of the previous scores, is that it's really only in like a fourth, less than a fourth of the movie it really shines in just those times in between dialogues. And that's Noah Baumbach and Randy Newman. It's a deliberate choice to kind of let the dialogue own the screen and really unfold so that the audience can really feel and see that like raw emotion and not get distracted by anything else, which a score could potentially do. So the choice to only be in a fourth of the movie, I think is really interesting. And I think it really helps with the, the emotional feel of it. What do you think? This is a movie sort of about people who are so caught up in the dynamics of their divorce that they don't get to come up for that much and take a look at the bigger picture and i think that by kind of having those few moments throughout the movie where they do that and where there's music to accompany it and there's a little bit more emotion it allows you to then kind of get lost in the rest of it in the same way that the characters are where it's just there's no feeling there's no you know it's just a process and yeah that kind of consumes them. So this is, I think, just a very intentional score in a lot of ways. They have these separate themes, but there's times when they're almost integrated. There's times when they're completely split apart with what is happening with their marriage. I think that this is the most thoughtful score. It's probably the one that I would choose to award if I was picking the Oscar. I don't know how you feel about it. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty much on board with you. I've, I've you know, written down my notes that there's, there's really two ways, obviously, to, to look at a film score. It's do you enjoy it just on its own outside of the outside of the movie, but then obviously the context and what it's intended for is what we're talking about here. And I think this movie is wins on both those accounts in my mind. I enjoy listening to this score a lot outside of the movie, but in terms of its like functional intent for the movie, it's, it's, it's really there, and I, I would agree with you. So that's what I would say should win. The highest odds to win is the score that won the Golden Globe, and that is the score for Joker. I'm going to butcher the name. Hilder Gutendotter.
she's a first-time nominee. Obviously, a very cello-heavy, bleak atmosphere. I think you have some very specific thoughts on this score, if I want to understand correctly. Yeah, yeah. Um, first, just I think it'd be interesting to comment on, uh, you know, just Hilda Gutendotter's breakout career right now. I mean, she's done this past year alone, um, Joker and um, Chernobyl, and it's just been sweeping a bunch of awards. And I guess my my take on this is, I think we both can agree, and I heard in your other pods that you're not the biggest Joker fan. It didn't really work for you. Um, but I think that this score is is phenomenal in the context of this movie. And I don't think this movie works with anyone, let alone you and I, without this score. Um, and that's because the premise of the movie is you're basically living the POV of this one guy the entire movie. And you know this this guy turns into Joker. You know, he kind of falls into anger and madness. But when you first see him, he's somewhat of an empathetic character. Because he's kind of a recluse, you don't get a lot of human interaction out of him. Um, so you don't really know what's going on in his head. And you, you, you really need a helping hand to understand how he falls into anger. And that's what Hilder is doing with, with this score. And unlike some of the other some of the other nominees, um, like Marriage Story or uh, Little Women, Women, that doesn't evolve. The score doesn't evolve throughout. This one evolves like crazy. It comes in, as you said, very cello-heavy, which is just supposed to be emblematic of of uh, Joaquin Phoenix's character, and it's supposed to be a little empathetic. And then as the movie progresses, it gets more and more loud and heavy, and to the point where you know he goes full-on Joker at the end, and. He's just filled with anger, and he kind of falls into madness. And the score—you can still hear the cello, but it's completely drowned out by the, you know, 90-piece orchestra. And there's huge drums just bashing. So, like, you also feel the anger. But if that score didn't exist, I don't think we would have the key insights and really understand, or, or could see this guy ultimately going from somewhat empathetic character all the way to full-on madness murderer, right? Like. Without that, I don't think I don't think that story is believable. It definitely sets the tone. It's a little bit of a shame to me that every time you stream the Joker soundtrack, money goes to Gary Glitter. But um, I, I'm I think that those are interesting points, and I do think that the score evolves with the character. I struggled with this movie so much that it's almost hard. Like, it's hard for me to evaluate Joaquin Phoenix's performance because I struggled with the movie. Yeah. So I struggled to just evaluate the soundtrack in a movie to me that was just kind of a jumbled mess. But I think that is thoughtful in terms yeah. of what you described. And, I mean, if this, if you can get behind the idea that this film it evolves and it progresses to a certain point, then it can put some order around a chaotic movie like that. Yes, you have to accept that premise, I think. Yes. Because otherwise, it's just a bunch of noise. And that's sort of yeah. what Joker was to me. Well, and here's another hot take for you. is So this movie, um, it was... The film, the score was created in a little bit of an interesting way. Um, and so was a movie where most times when scores are created, it's, it's usually after the movie's done, we send it to the composer, he takes a look at it, or he's looking at the script, and then he develops the music to fit the screen. In this case, Hilder and um, Todd Phillips, 
it was a constant dialogue where Hilder, I think, created that solo, I mean, that cello piece, which I think she called, like, Defeated Clown and sent that over to Todd Phillips pretty early in the filming. And he loved it so much that he would blast that during during um, filming and uh, during when the actors were acting. And he has been on the record saying that a lot of the movie evolved and was shaped based on that movie. And Joaquin Phoenix did deliberate things uh, because of that mute, because of that one piece of music. So my hot take is if Joker ends up, you know, winning Best Picture, right? Oh God! I know. Under that circumstance, you almost kind of got to give it a little bit to Hilder as well, because this movie wouldn't be what it is today without that film score. That's interesting. No, I, I do fundamentally agree with what you're saying. I mean, I, this is a movie that relies heavily on atmosphere, and you're uncomfortable. I mean, the music is uncomfortable music, and that's the intent. And yeah, I no, I think I think it's fair. I I understand what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I will never listen to this outside of the movie, (laughs) but I think in the context of the movie, it's 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 great. Yeah, tough tough to dance to. (laughs) Those are the five. The shortlist for score came out in December. It obviously included the five movies that were nominated. Also on the lists, Avengers Endgame, Bombshell, The Farewell. Ford vs. Ferrari, Frozen 2, Jojo Rabbit, The King, the little little scene Netflix movie, mm-hmm. Motherless Brooklyn, Pain and Glory, and Us. Any feelings on any of those? Motherless Brooklyn, I have listened to a few times. Again, I, this is where I cheat. I haven't seen the movie yet. I haven't seen Motherless Brooklyn either. But from what I understand and uh, understand about the movie, it, it seems to match up pretty well with the film score. I mean, it's a very angsty, twitchy movie where, um, I mean, from what I remember, there's like a, like a squeaky trumpet always in the background. It's like juxtaposed next to like a pretty ordered piano. So it kind of like fits what I envision the movie acting like. I think that it does some, some very um, interesting creative uh, melodies in there. So Edward Norton took something, a book, that was not a period piece and made it a period piece. Mm. And I feel like the music is definitely a period piece. Like, it's definitely of the period. It's kind of jazzy. Yeah. So I can see that working. What else on that list? I ha- Again, I haven't seen Jojo Rabbit. Have you seen Jojo Rabbit? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh of course you have, right? Uh, I, listening to it, um, I think it's the film score is uh, Michael Giacchino. And he did Lost, and there's a lot of, I'm a big Lost fan, there's a lot of Lost vibes in that film score, so that was interesting, it was kind of, it was kind of like a throwback to me, doesn't fit the movie, I don't think, whatsoever, but. Really a few of these, and there are some good scores in here, Uh, Ford vs. Ferrari is a good score, you can only nominate five. I thought The Farewell had pretty memorable music, um, especially kind of the song that I think most people remember from that is called The Lie, and it's the one that you sort of hear throughout the film. Mm-hmm. 
that to me was a movie, a, a score that you remember six months, eight months after you see the movie. And so I think that counts for something. And then Us. To me, this was... It's not that there's any of the five that are in there that I think should be out. I mean, I think all these are reasonable nominations. But this is like the iconic score of the year, I think, in a lot of ways. Like, if you look back in 10 years, I think that the take on I Got Five on it is the one that people are going to remember. It's almost self-evident. And there were some debate as as if to whether or not it would even be eligible because it is adopting a song that already exists. Mm -hmm. At the point that it's eligible and you shortlist it, I do struggle with not nominating it. Yeah. But that's that's really the standouts I think from the shortlist. Pain and Glory. I don't know anything about the soundtrack. I actually can't even find the soundtrack to listen to, and I don't remember the music. Yeah, so I haven't heard it either. That was kind of a weird shortlist. But what about other than the shortlist? Any other scores this year that again snubs kind of means replacing something, but scores that maybe just you would have liked to have seen recognized. Yeah, and again, the caveat, the theme for me is that I haven't seen this, but I've listened to, I listened to the score, and I just know that this has been, you know, it, it wasn't nominated for any Oscars, and, and a lot of people are upset about that, is Uncut Gems. And from what I know about the movie, the film score is just super interesting. I don't really understand how it matches whatsoever with the movie itself. I mean, listening through it, um, it's got like electronic elements with like an 80s synth synth vibe going on. Um, there's a bunch of like eerie, like tra- tranquil melodies going on from time to time as well. And when I think about um, Uncut Gems and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it is a relatively modern movie, right? Like it takes, it takes place nowadays? It takes place in 2012. Okay, okay. So again, some of the 80s synth throwback just doesn't feel like it matches up with an Adam Sandler's Sandler drama. So it's very cosmic in nature. Like the music is very cosmic in nature. And it does, it accomplishes a couple things. I think it's a really effective score. I think on the one hand, it's very uncomfortable for some of the reasons you're describing. Like it feels like it almost sort of doesn't fit. It's got some weird like off chords. And this is a movie that wants you to be really uncomfortable. The first five minutes of the movie. So you see a field where in Africa where this these gems are being mined and then it goes the camera zooms into the inside of this diamond and it's sort of going around the inside of a diamond and you're hearing the synthesizing spacey music like okay. when you're traveling through space and then it zooms out into Adam Sandler's colon getting a colonoscopy <laughs> and I think that that pretty much sums up the experience of Uncut Gems and so I actually do think the music fits but yeah, just listening to it and just knowing it's about basketball and gambling, it probably seems weird. Yeah, no, and I think that description makes total sense. I, I knew it was supposed to be a movie that makes you feel uncomfortable, and because my image of this film score not matching up makes it even more uncomfortable, I think works, right? I would say go see it. It's a, it's a great movie. <laughs> One of my biggest snubs for the year, and I have uh, next week I'll have the 
episode where I cover international feature and I'll get to spend just ample time ranting about Manos, which was one of my favorite movies of the whole year. It's a foreign film from Colombia. It was not nominated. It was not even shortlisted in the international feature, which was very upsetting to me. I also thought the score really deserved to be nominated. It's in some ways similar to Uncut Gems. It's very discordant. It makes you very uncomfortable in a movie that is supposed to be very uncomfortable to watch. Um, Mika Levy, who scored this movie, also scored Jackie, which a few years ago, that was a Natalie Portman movie about Jackie Kennedy, which I also remember really feeling should have been nominated for soundtrack. So Mika Levy, um, I think, is getting a raw deal for whatever reason. I don't know much about her outside of, of her work. Um, that was one. There's an animated movie that's actually nominated uh, for Best Animated Feature this year called I Lost My Body. It's watchable on Netflix. The score is by Dan Levy, and he did it by himself. He's in like an electric pop duo um, over in Europe, and he's just one half of it. It's a really mesmerizing and memorable score. Especially for an animated film, it's an adult animated film, but that one really stuck with me. Do you think the Academy, and in terms of the, the film score category specifically, discounts animated, animated movies? I don't know as much, to be honest, about this, like the behind-the-scenes sausage-making of this category. I would assume that the musical branch of the Academy isn't watching, like, Midnight Family or maybe even to that respect, I Lost My Body. Now, Frozen 2 was shortlisted, but that's obviously a pretty major film. Yeah. There was a time, something I'll talk about after the score segment, there was a time when this was uh, split up into two categories, best score in a musical or comedy and best score in a drama, in the same way that the Golden Globes handles like most of their acting awards. And the reason that they put it back together was because Disney was just basically winning every single year yeah. in the comedy side of it. But again, it's a different kind of animated movie than I Lost My Body, so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just, when I, when I think of my favorite composers and film scores, a lot of them kind of dabble mostly in animated flicks. And they're some of the people who have been off, off the Oscar buzz um, and have won an award. And I, I, I think sometimes that it might be because the voting body, to your point, isn't watching those movies as much. Um, there's some other some other composers like John Powell and Michael Giacchino, who is nominated, but he um, his work on animated a- animated movies are some of my favorites. Well, I appreciate you joining to break down all the music scores. Good luck with your uh, remaining workout regimen. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll just hey everybody, just make sure you work out to film scores. <laughs> Cool. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. Thank you again to Michael Butler for coming on to discuss the scores. I want to spend the rest of the episode covering the remaining two musical categories. What's that, Jake? Two more categories? That's right. In addition to Best Original Song, which we'll get to in a minute, there is an active category in the Academy Awards Best Original Musical. That is an active category right now. Now, you might say... I watch the Oscars every year and I don't remember ever seeing Best Original Musical. Well, that's because since the award was incepted in 2000, it has never been given out. 
the next best picture, which is a website that covers a lot of Oscar uh, related news, did a nice job uh, summarizing this back in 2018 when the Academy was considering some rule changes, um, but maintained the best musical award. So the original intent was sort of to honor Disney films pretty much. In 1989, Disney was basically winning best original score every year. That was kind of the golden era of Pocahontas and Lion King and all the movies that are now being remade as live action films. To try and counter this, the Academy actually split the best original score award into best dramatic score and best uh, comedy or musical score in 1995, kind of like what you see for the acting categories of the Golden Globes. And that didn't really make a lot of sense. It didn't go over that well with the musical branch because none of the other categories were split up in that way. So in 2000, they recombined it into just best original score. And then as a way to still give an option to award musical films in the future, they created a new category, best original musical. However, the guidelines for best original musical are basically never met. So a musical, according to the Academy, is a movie that consists of not fewer than five original songs by the same writer or team of writers, either used as voiceovers or visually performed. Each of these songs must be substantively rendered, clearly audible, and intelligible, and must further the storyline of the motion picture. An arbitrary group of songs unessential to the storyline will not be considered eligible. So there's not a lot of movies, if you think about it, that qualify for that award. And even if you think about some of the movies like Lion King and Beauty and the Beast and some of the Disney remakes, those don't qualify because most of the music in that is no longer original. So you're looking at movies like The Greatest Showman and Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. There aren't that many movies each year, though, that fit that mold. And in order to have this award if there are nine or fewer qualifying works submitted in any category the executive committee can recommend to the board of governors that no award be given in that category for the current awards year so i think it's kind of an interesting little piece of oscars trivia that not a lot of people know it probably will continue to go unawarded next year i know lin-manuel miranda's original musical before hamilton in the heights is being adapted for the screen so that's something that Well, actually, that probably wouldn't be eligible. I'd have to look into that. So the point is, there's just not a lot of musicals um, anymore. I think Cats would have been... Again, I don't know if that would have been eligible this year. I don't know. It's not going to be awarded at this year's Oscars, but it's kind of an interesting piece of trivia. Let's move on now, though, and cover Best Original Song. So Best Original Song, I think, is a pretty controversial category in the critical community. I think there's a lot of critics who don't like the inclusion at the Oscars, especially because it seems like a lot of the songs are written and kind of plopped into the ending credits and not really germane to the film, and then just sort of an excuse to lobby for some more awards for a studio and to get famous pop artists integrated into the Oscars. I actually really like the original song award. I like those breaks at the Oscars. I think there was a year pretty recently where they like split up the songs and they only did a little piece of them and I I kind of actually like having the full songs performed I'm also somebody who isn't bothered by the length of the show which I think that's I'm in the minority there the nominees this year are I Can't Let You Throw Yourself Away from Toy Story 4 by Randy Newman I'm Gonna Love Me Again from Rocket Man by Elton John and Bernie Toppin I'm Standing With You from Breakthrough by Diane Warren Into the Unknown from Frozen 2, that's Kristen Anderson Lopez and Robert Lopez, and then Stand Up from Harriet, Joshua Brian Campbell, and Cynthia Ervo. I'll take these one by one. 
Before digging into some of the songs that were shortlisted but not nominated, one in particular that really disappointed me, but let's start with the ones that were nominated. So, I Can't Let You Throw Yourself Away from Toy Story 4 by Randy Newman. So for anybody who's seen Toy Story 4, this is a pretty funny scene. The character Forky, who now has his own Disney Plus empire, but he's basically a fork uh, come to life, but he can still considers himself trash. So he's, he's trying to throw himself into a trash can and then I guess kind of like jump out the window of a moving RV. Um, so it's that's sort of the context of the song, and then Woody is trying to stop him from doing that because he knows how much the the girl that owns them uh, really loves Forky, and and how even though he's trash, he's her favorite toy. It's pretty funny within the context of the movie. It's not the most memorable song to me in general, but obviously Randy Newman has a long legacy. He's also nominated in the score category this year. We talked about for Marriage Story. I don't see this one having much of a chance of winning. I understand why it made the shortlist just because of Randy Newman and uh, Toy Story 4 was a movie that a lot of people appreciated. And, you know, it is a movie for the criticism of the category about just kind of throwing songs in the end credits. That's really not the case with most of the ones that were nominated this year, actually. And, and this one is part of the movie. It's integrated into the story in sort of a musical type of way. So I understand the nomination here. I don't think it has much of a chance of winning, um, but I could I could be wrong about that. I'm Gonna Love Me Again from Rocket Man. So this won the Golden Globe. Um, this is Elton John and Bernie Taupin, obviously the subjects of the movie, and it is performed by them, um, but Taron er- Egerton has um, some involvement so as well. It's a nice little throwback, get some new music from Elton John. Elton John uh, amazingly has a ton of music. Like if you go back and look at his discography, he's obviously got some really famous albums like Yellow Brick, uh, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, um, Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano Player that had like Crocodile Rock and Daniel on it. In between that, he's had a lot of albums that have one to no recognizable songs. So... He's, and he's, so he's actually been putting out music um, pretty consistently over time. But, you know, I think a lot of people don't aren't maybe familiar with some of the newer music. And this one, you know, people will hear because it's nominated for Best Song. So it's kind of fun in that respect. I think this definitely has a chance of winning. I definitely hope that we get to see Elton John performing this at the, at the Oscars. But, you know, this is a nice song. It is sort of 
interesting in the context of the movie Rocket Man because Rocket Man is a movie that takes Elton John's music and sort of uses it as the music of a musical like it tells his story as a musical which is a, a choice that actually I found very strange just given the area of his life that the movie focuses on which is his drug addiction and then you kind of counter that with these musical numbers and that are kind of supposed to move the plot forward but the songs aren't really about the plot and I, I like wasn't a huge fan of Rocketman but um, this song rolls in the ending credits you know, it's a song that people don't know because it's new for this movie. You know, they might have been better off running with Rocket Man or one of the big hits, but I think they probably wanted to get into this category. Um, Elton John was also shortlisted for a Lion King song um, from the new Lion King, Never Too Late. That was not nominated as one of the final five. So the next song on the list is I'm Standing With You from Breakthrough. And when you're feeling broken it seems like every door is closing Want you to know that mine is always open I'll be there Through whatever you go through I'm standing with you And wherever you go to You go to I'll stand beside you And when you think that all nominated because it meant that I had to watch Breakthrough. I talked about this a little bit in the costume episode because I found the costumes and the lack of seasonal accuracy extremely distracting, but this is a faith-based film about a boy who falls into a lake and then by the grace of God recovers. It is very bad in my opinion, and that's not a knock on religion. There's literally dialogue at the end of this movie when he's recovered where people in his school are going up to him and saying, how come you survived, but my mom is dead? It's just very poorly written. And I had to watch it, thanks to this song being nominated. A couple things that you do have going for this song. So it's sung by Chrissy Metz. She's the star of the movie. She's also well-known from the TV show This Is Us from NBC. And she, she does the singing here, so that you know points for having somebody involved with the movie doing the singing. And then the song's written by Diane Warren. Diane Warren is nominated for an Oscar about every year. She has done some unbelievable work. Some of the songs earlier in her career are legendary film songs. You have 1998, Con Air, How Do I Live, that was performed by Leanne Rimes. 1997, Because You Love Me, performed by Celine Dion from the movie Up Close and Personal. 1999, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing, performed by Aerosmith from Armageddon. The Music of My Heart from 2000. She's done some great work. She's established herself. She's earned her place as somebody who should be considered for Oscars. Her more recent work is generic at best, in my unprofessional opinion. In 2016, I think people were very moved by the performance of Till It Happens to You. Lady Gaga performed that with a series of sexual assault survivors on stage, and it was one of the highlights of that show. Um, it did not win. Sam Smith won for the James Bond theme song from Spectre. 
Since then, though, in 2018, she was nominated for Stand Up for Something from the movie Marshall about Thurgood Marshall. That was performed by Common. In 2019, she was nominated for All Fight, which was uh, from RBG, and I believe that was performed by Jennifer Hudson. And then this year, I'm Standing With You uh, from Breakthrough. These three songs are basically interchangeable. They're generic, uplifting, inspirational ballads, pretty cookie-cutter lyrics, very similar in tone and theme and message. She's basically just earned her way into getting an Oscar for most of the things that she does. And so Breakthrough's in there. I, I This has no chance of winning, and I'm just resentful that I had to watch the movie, to be quite frank. The fourth is Into the Unknown from Frozen 2, and this is a jam. You're not a voice. You're just a ringing in my ear. And if I heard you, which I don't, and spoken for, I fear... Everyone I've ever loved is here within these walls I'm sorry, secret siren, but I'm blocking out your calls I've had my adventure, I don't need something new I am afraid of what I'm risking if I follow you into the So I spoke already in the animated episode about my general distaste for Frozen 2 as a movie writ large. I don't think it made any sense. This is a great song. This is the song that should win. I believe it is the song that will win. For my money, a lot better than Let It Go. I think it's a great song. I don't have anything to say about it. My biggest question is who's going to perform it. Adina Menzel plays Ilsa. She sings it in the movie. I believe she performed Let It Go at the Oscars the year that that was nominated and won. Panic at the Disco plays the version in the end credits. And a lot of people have hated on that. I don't hate it. I don't hate it. Into the unknown. Into the unknown. Into the unknown. I got nothing bad to say about Into the Unknown. It's one of the, one of the few joys of Frozen 2. And then the last uh, song that was nominated was Stand Up from Harriet. And this is performed by Cynthia Ervo, who is also nominated for Best Actress for her performance as Harriet Tubman in this movie. I think this is a pretty good song. I do what I can when I can while I can for my people. While the clouds roll back and the stars fill the night, that's when I'm gonna stand up, take my kind of falls loosely in that same genre as I'm Standing With You and I'll Fight and Diane Warren's recent brand of Oscar song, but I think the hook's a little better. I think it's a slightly better song. I don't think it's going to win. 
but I would not be surprised to see Cynthia Erivo performing it at the Oscars. So those are the songs that were nominated. The songs that made the shortlist but were not nominated, and I'm not going to talk about all of them, but I'll highlight a couple things about a few of them. Speechless from Aladdin. This is performed by Naomi Scott. Aladdin obviously using a lot of the same songs from the animated film from the early 90s. This is an original. Didn't make the cut. Letter to My Godfather. This is from a movie called The Black Godfather. It's available on Netflix. It's performed by Farrell. You remember when he played uh, Happy from Minions movie and was kind of dancing around and he pulled up. I think that was maybe the year that Ellen hosted and he had all the celebrities dancing in the front row. So um, no encore for Farrell. Um, Not nominated. It was on the shortlist but didn't make the final five. Catchy song from T-Pain and That Girl Lele. This is from the Lego Movie 2. This song is ridiculous. I remember Everything is Awesome from the Lego Movie 1. You had Lonely Island performing that at the Oscars. It was a little bit out of place, and uh, they're not going to get a a repeat here with T-Pain, which is sort of a shame. I I can't say that I think it's a good song, per se. I mentioned Never Too Late, which was from The Lion King, another uh, nomination for Elton John, but this one was shortlisted but not nominated. And then from The Lion King, probably the biggest surprise snub, to be honest, was Spirit. That's performed by Beyonce. You know, the Academy, you might think that they'd want to have Beyonce come to the Oscars and perform. Maybe not after her and Jay-Z relate to the Golden Globes. Who knows? Daily Battles from Tom York's. That was from Motherless Brooklyn, which was also nominated for score. A Glass of Soju from Parasite. So this one is hilarious to me. I have no recollection of it. I loved Parasite. It made a lasting impression on me. I don't remember this song in the movie. I don't even know where this possibly could have fit into the movie. (laughs) High Above the Water was the end title from Toni Morrison, The Pieces I Am. That was uh, submitted for Best Documentary. It wasn't nominated or shortlisted. That is performed by Catherine Bostick. And then finally... My biggest disappointment in this category, Glasgow, No Place Like Home, as performed by Jesse Buckley in the A24 movie, Wild Rose. Had to find my way, make my own mistakes, but you So Wild Rose, I wanted to give a couple minutes to talk about. First first of all, because it's just a, a really good movie. I wish more people saw this movie. I think the problem with it was that not very many, many people saw it at all. This is an A24 movie. Jesse Buckley plays a woman who lives in Glasgow who has a little bit of a checkered history. She's just gotten out of jail. She's got two kids that she had when she was really young. 
and her dream is to be a country singer and throughout the movie she's trying to balance this dream with the responsibilities that she has as a parent and you kind of see her struggle to follow what she cares about and loves without kind of abdicating her responsibilities uh, with her children. Jesse Buckley gives what I would call a star turn if more people saw it, but it is kind of a star turn because she really is starting to emerge as somebody who's in big relevant movies. So you're going to start seeing a lot of her. Um, she's really, really excellent in this movie. And this song, Glasgow, comes at the end of the film and without really ruining anything that actually happens uh, as far as story-wise and plot points, it really feels like a culmination of what we've seen. There's actually a lot of songs in this movie that I really liked a lot, and this may or may not be my favorite song from the movie, but just the role that it plays in, in wrapping up the story, this is one that I was really rooting for. I was really hoping we'd get to see Jesse Buckley performing this at the Oscars. Alas, the Academy disappoints, but overall, a good crop of, of songs this year. It's not necessarily my favorite in the more recent years. Looking back at, you know, last year, some of the the songs you had, All the Stars from Black Panther, that was a big hit. All Fight, which I mentioned from Jennifer Hudson, that was the Diane Warren uh, generic inspiration ballad of, of the moment. Obviously, Shallow from Stars Born won that one. The Place Where Lost Things Go from Mary Poppins Returns, I bet you already forgot about that. And then When a Cowboy Trades His Spurs for Wings, which was Willie Watson and Tim Blake Nelson from the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. That was a song I kind of liked, and that actually was in the movie. That was in the first uh, little vignette with James Franco. And then looking a couple years back, um, you had Mighty River, Mary J. Blige from Mudblound. The Mystery of Love was a song that I still listen to a lot from Call Me By Your Name. Um, Remember Me from Coco. Stand Up For Something was the Diane Warren inspirational ballad of the moment that year. And then This Is Me, which I kind of feel like got robbed from Greatest Showman. So, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, This is a category that I think is really fun. I know a lot of the critics don't like it. I like it. Hope you like listening to some of the songs here and um, you know getting to know those a little better before Oscar night. But overall, I'd expect this to go into the, un- into the unknown from Frozen. That's what I would probably choose myself if I were picking two. That's it for this one. Um, appreciate you guys listening, and we're getting close to the Oscars. Stay tuned to the feed. A couple more categories and movies to cover before the big show. So, guys, thanks for tuning in, and I will talk to you soon.